If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you were with us last week, you know that we started a new series called The Meaning of Life. Uh, It is one week of nine weeks that we are going to ask the question, the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? I, I really am excited about this because it gives us an opportunity to talk about something uh, that's this. Uh, people many times over the years have, I've heard people say, either growing up or even in my adult years, that the Bible is not something that's relevant for today. It, it has a lot of stuff in it that doesn't apply to today's world. Uh, but that's not actually true. There's a lot of things in there that are very relevant for us today. There's actually three of the biggest questions that mankind will ask are answered in the Bible. The first question is, where do we come from? I think most of us at some point answer, ask that question, and the answer is not our mommies and daddies. It's where do we come from in the big picture? Uh, and Genesis actually answers that question for us. Um, the second question people want to know many times is, where are we going? Uh, what's going to happen after the end of our life on this planet? And Revelation answers that question for us, as well as other pieces in Scripture. The question in the middle is, what is the purpose of our life? And that's what Ecclesiastes does. It answers the question, what is the meaning of life? So I think it's completely relevant and relatable, and I'm really excited to be able to walk through this. Um, I'm going to refer to previous weeks a lot during this series, just so um, we just kind of all track in the same place. But if you're not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, it's only 12 chapters. It's not a lot for you to read. And I'm going to warn you now, um, it's not an incredibly uplifting book. Uh, You're going to walk through it and go, this feels a little depressing. Um, And it kind of is created that way a little bit because what it's actually doing is, is giving us a snapshot into the life of King Solomon, who wrote the book, during the years that he gave all of his time and understanding and resource to answering this question, only to find out that everything that he could do in his own strength couldn't answer the question. So after 40 years of walking through his life and trying to answer the question, he came to the reality that maybe he can't do that on his own. And that can be a little depressing, a little discouraging. Um, he is the author of the book, um, but and let me give you a little bit of background on him. He was the the um, the son of King David. He was the third king of Israel, the United Kingdom, Israel. Solomon's mom was Bathsheba, and when he became king, he asked God for one thing. Actually, God actually asked him to pick one thing in a dream, and instead of choosing power or money or any of the things that he could have chosen, Solomon asked God to give him wisdom to govern the nation of Israel. God was so pleased with his response, he said, okay, because you chose wisely, I'm going to give you that and everything that goes with that. And he became the wisest man ever to live across the nation of Israel. And next to Jesus, I believe, the wisest man in the world. He penned 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 3,000 proverbs. He penned over 1,000 songs. And three of the books of the Bible that we have in our 66 books were written by King Solomon. He was incredibly wise. He was also incredibly wealthy. And what I mean by wealth, I mean he had a lot of money. If you heard me say this last week, 25, on average, 25 tons of gold would come into his kingdom every year. Not from the people, not from taxes, but from um, um, 
and investments and things that he did in business and gifts from other nations and different pe- people that he was interacting with, which equates to a roughly a billion dollars today in U.S. money. Over a billion dollars a year was coming into his coffers in the nation of Israel. Just in Jerusalem, and Second Chronicles 1 actually tells us that gold and silver were as common in Jerusalem as stones. That's how much money there was in this nation. So he was super smart. He was super wise. He was super wealthy. He had a lot of stuff, a lot of resource, and he had a lot of women. 700 wives and 300 concubines, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay? What we know about the man is that he was incredibly gifted. Last week I said if you took the position of the President of the United States with Steve Jobs, who is the founder of Apple, and Jeff Bezos, who is the founder of Amazon, and Warren Buffett, and combine them all together, this is the kind of guy that we're talking about. He really is a qualified man. And he was very wise, but his wisdom was also his weakness. Because in the process of being so wise, Solomon tended to begin to trust in his life more in his wisdom than in the things of God. So, and that's a problem. In the beginning, he was a man that wanted to walk in the ways of God earlier in his years when he was the king at a younger age. But then he began to grow in wisdom and wealth and women. And all of these things begin to influence his life where through a much of his life, he walked away from the wisdom that came from God and he trusted in his own wisdom and his life became a mess. And it was only at the end of his life, and this is what we see at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, where he almost comes back full circle to recognize that he really made a mistake. And all the wisdom he had couldn't bring him to understanding what truth really is. And he gives us this book as a warning. He gives us this book as an encouragement even though it sounds discouraging, he's, he's writing very honestly as he pens, the meaning of life is not what we think it is. So what we're going to do before we go through the rest of the book is we're going to jump to the end. Some of you like to go to the end of the story before you actually get through the stuck. Any, anybody like that in school? Like you want to know what happens at the end of the story? We're going to go to the end of the story first, and then we're going to spend the next number of weeks in identifying things that he thought would give him satisfaction. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, look, says this. Everything you were taught can be put into a few words. Basically what he's saying is the conclusion of the matter is this. This is what gives you real life. Respect and obey God. This is what life is all about. He's saying, respect and obey God. This is what life is all about. Another way of saying that is, if you want life to be meaningful, nothing rivals life with God. You can pour yourself into everything you want, but if you want life to be meaningful, and the reason why he uses that, I just want to give you a, a little illustration of that, of what I mean by that, is let's, let's use one of, these, one of these cups as an example here. Each one of these cups just represent life, our lives, are like vessels. And each one of these cups, we have an opportunity to fill with something. So if we fill it with life, true life, like he's saying here, obeying God, knowing God, being in relationship with God, we fill ourselves with life, then there's enough in here to sustain us so that we can enjoy what God is giving us. And there's also enough for us to pour into other people. Okay, does that make sense how that works? Everything that God gives us, he pours into our vessel and our cup, and it gives us more so that we can pour into other people. My water bottle is gone, so I'm going to take another drink. <laughs> However, there's another way for us to fill our lives as well, okay? And if we choose to take 
something else and define something else as the example. If he's saying life without God is meaningless, but life with God is awesome. Nothing rivals life like relationship with God. What he's saying is don't let your vessel be filled with things that are not of God. Your focus can't be for some our satisfaction is going to be found in pleasure. So we're going to find anything that we want in this world to just fill this cup with pleasure. Because pleasure is going to be the thing that gives us satisfaction. Or maybe it's not pleasure. For some people, it's stuff. It's materialism. I'm just going to fill myself up with everything that I possibly can, and I'm going to accumulate all these things because he who dies with the most toys wins. Maybe it's not stuff. Maybe it's just money. I'm going to invest, and I'm going to have all this money, and and at the end of my life, I'm going to look back and say, look, everything that I had gave meaning to my life. And what we're going to find is that if these are the things that we fill our lives with, and they think they give us meaning in the end of our lives, there's nothing in them. There's no satisfaction. Everything that we thought would give us meaning actually doesn't fulfill it all. So what do you fill your life with? Well, Solomon's going to challenge us in that today. Hang on. Okay. What do we fill our life with today? Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 2. Solomon kicks it off by reminding us in a very encouraging way. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, he says. The teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And meaningless is futile, is basically what he's saying. I have gone through my life. I have wisdom. I have understanding. I have all these things. But ultimately, it is completely meaningless. Our quest for satisfaction outside of God is absolutely meaningless. Now, that doesn't mean that we should not be ambitious It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue things in life. What he's saying is, if God is not the priority, knowing him is not our number one priority, anything else is going to not satisfy us. We will find ourselves in want. Last week, we talked about nothing new under the sun and how we can explore everything that we want. But basically, it's a cycle that goes on and on and on. And some people think life starts in one place and then it ends on a straight line. But actually, life is more like a a, a, um, cul-de-sac where the generation that is currently driving in the cul-de-sac will eventually come back and pass the baton to the next generation that drives in the cul-de-sac to pass the baton to the next generation. And everything that every generation experiences They pass on to the next generation. And that's part of what life looks like. And Solomon is being a little little fatalistic here. And he's saying it's meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun. Well, that was last week. This week, we're going to look at some examples. And every week from now on, we're going to look at one type of thing that we can invest in that may not bring satisfaction. Every week, we'll look and examine something a little bit different. This week, I'm calling it Don't Be a Wise Fool because we're going to look at wisdom. Wisdom does not rival life with God. This is one thing you can pour into that cup that absolutely has no meaning. What is wisdom? Well, it's not knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are two different things, but let me explain it. Knowledge is information gained through experience. Okay? That's knowledge. Information gained through actual experience. Wisdom is judging what's right and true, or if you will, knowledge is the understanding. Wisdom is the application. 
So you can know something, but it doesn't mean that you're actually using it properly if you don't have wisdom. For example, knowledge could be understanding human anatomy and medical science. We have a lot of knowledge in our world about human anatomy and understanding and medical science. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge to either save lives or take lives. Make sense how that works? So there's the difference. Just because you have the ability to do it doesn't mean that you're going to do it the proper way. And that's the definition of wisdom. What is right and what is true. So if in our efforts to be good people, we want to apply wisdom to every area of our lives, that's not a bad thing to be about. The problem is if we think our ability to apply rightness to things is the thing that's going to ultimately satisfy us. And it doesn't. And Solomon's talking about that, that wisdom isn't the solution to the answer. And he was a very wise fool because he thought his right application to certain things would provide that satisfaction only to find out that's not the truth. So he's teaching us in this passage how not to be a wise fool. And I want to begin reading with you in chapter 1, verse 12. This is what Solomon says. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore my wisdom, all that is explored by wisdom, all that is done under the heavens. So he's saying, everything that I had to my resource and my ability, I applied to explore what is happening under the heavens. So it's a human effort. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, what we have to know about Solomon here is that Solomon had the perfect environment to come up with the answer. Because for the 40 years that he led the nation of Israel, it was a time of peace. He wasn't at war. When his father, David, led the nation of Israel, he was a warrior. And there was war going on. And and if we know anything, the difference between peacetime and wartime, we know that when you're in war, your resources and your thoughts and your efforts are all channeled towards what? War. Towards fighting. Whether you're defending or you're taking new land, protecting your own. Your time, your resource, your efforts are engulfed and, and, and made up by the things that war requires. And that's what happens. In peacetime, that's not the case. I still remember being in high school um, in 19... And when I was there in high school, I remember one of my high school teachers telling me the story that when he was a little boy, during World War II, there was a shortage of rubber in the United States. And it wasn't really there was a shortage. It was that all of the raw material and the resource was being reallocated towards the efforts of the war. And he said, I remember how difficult it was for us to get gasoline, how difficult it was for us to get rubber for tires. And he remembered, he said, we didn't go very many places. We didn't travel very far because we didn't know if we would have the means, meaning the resource to actually replace it. He said, but I remember traveling to a family, uh, a family dinner for one of our holidays, I think he said. And he said, the tire on our car blew out. And he said, we didn't have a spare and we couldn't find a spare tire that we could purchase because all the rubber was being used for war. And he said, I still remember to this day sitting in the back seat of that car, looking out the window as my father pulled the rubber off the tire and we drove five miles home on a rim because we had no tire and there was nobody that could help us. And he said, and the car sat in the driveway until he was able to track down a tire from someone because all of the resource got reallocated for wartime. 
This is not Solomon's problem. He's not thinking about strategy. He's not thinking about fighting. He's not thinking about, are his people being abused? Or is he conquering other nations? Or are people trying to conquer him? He's in a time of peace. And when you're in a time of peace, you come up with all these different things to come up with, right? right? You think about this in the world that we live in right now. We're not really in a time of war in our, cult, in our country, meaning you're not going to go home and wonder whether you have bread on the table because it's going to be used for a different purpose or gasoline or tires. We kind of live in a time of peace in our country in that regard. And we, as a result, spend our time thinking about things that are a little bit more close to home. It's only when the storms settle that the other stuff raises to the surface. And Solomon has 40 years to think about the meaning of life. And he has a laboratory to do it in because he has all the time. He has all the wisdom. He has all the money and he has staff. Scripture shows us on average, he probably had upwards of over 30,000 people to take care of him, his family and his things. Over 30,000 people. That's a lot of people to oversee your personal things. I mean, he had a thousand women. So I mean, that alone would probably take quite a few of them, I would think. Right. But I mean, just a 30 apiece. I don't know. But the whole point I'm trying to say here is there were a lot of things that he had at his disposal to create a laboratory and an experiment to answer this question. What is the meaning of life? And wisdom is the thing that's going to do it. So he could focus, he could learn, he could study, he could ponder all of these things. And the answer to what he came up with was it's all meaningless. After all my research, after all of my education, after all of my wisdom, after all of my money and and researching this to come up with the answer, it's all futile. Why? would he come up with that answer? So he doesn't just tell us it doesn't mean anything. He tells us why. And I think this is important for us to know because if we're not careful, we can make the same mistakes. Why is life meaningless if wisdom is the thing that we're trying to satisfy ourselves with? Well, it's this, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. You go, what is he talking about here? This is what I think what he's referring to. He's saying things that are crooked, and he's talking about the world that we live in, can't be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying we're cursed. This world that we live in is broken. It's bent. It's crooked, if you will. And mankind is unable to straighten what's crooked. He's tried in his wisdom and his understanding. He's tried to apply good things to the world. Ultimately, the problem can't be fixed by us. It doesn't mean that we don't attempt to make things better. And I think that that's something we as the church need to be reminded of. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You and I are the light of the world. Those who are believers in faith in Christ, it is our job to be the light of the world. But man on our own cannot fix a spiritual problem. That spiritual problem of the curse is called sin. And it's not possible for you and I to actually fix it. And if we think by our understanding and by doing good things, we will fix a spiritual problem, we're flawed. It's not possible for us to do that. All the effort to correct the problem is still not going to be enough. And our attempts may contain it. And there are examples that we can do that. We can contain it. It's called laws. We put laws in place to tell people, this is how you're supposed to act. And yet most of us will probably leave today and drive off this property and not give any thought of what the speed limit is. So 
I'm just saying. Some of you be like, well, I never speed. And I'm like, well, you're lying. But I mean, the reality of it is we all do at some point in time. There are laws and the laws are trying to create boundaries of what's important. So we have boundaries. We have ways of containing certain things like prisons in our country and in our world. When there is a lot of evil and things that are not healthy and really broken stuff, we put them in prisons to try to correct or to rehabilitate people. Ultimately, the problem doesn't ever seem to go away. This weekend, I had an opportunity to go into Philadelphia with one of my kids. And um, Sarah and I went into, uh, Friday, went into Philly just for lunch. And while we were down there, she was like, hey, I've never been to the Liberty Bell. And two things came to mind. I was like, well, let's go to the Liberty Bell. And then I thought about it, and I was like, I've lived here most of my married life, and my 22-year-old has never been to the Liberty Bell. Parent fail. You know, I'm like, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. So if you have young kids, take them to the Liberty Bell. That's all I'm saying. She wasn't bitter about it or anything. She's like, I've never been there. And I was just like, we need to go to the Liberty Bell. So we went and trained, went to the Liberty Bell. And here's what happened. Now, if you've never been there, anyone ever been there before? Hands up. Couple, okay, a lot of people. Good for you. Okay. If you've never been there, you want to go. It's pretty cool. But there's a line to get into the Liberty Bell building. Okay. There's always a line. And there's a reason for that. Because you have to go through security to get to the Liberty Bell. And the irony in that, like I just, it struck me so strong to go, to go view America's symbol of freedom. You've got to go through security. Why? Because we live in a broken world. We live in a cursed world. And if you ask anybody why they do that, they'll tell you in 2001, when it was under a canopy and not closed in a building, there was a guy who thought it would be a great, great idea to take a metal hammer and go up and smack the Liberty Bell, which is what he did in 2001. And I still remember that story. And all I could think of was, some people were like, is it okay? Is it okay? All I could think of was, what did it sound like? Like, th- that's all I was thinking about. <laughs> is it okay? It already has a huge crack in it. You know, what did it sound like? In fact, the guy that was guarding it while we were there, I was asking him about that. And I said, you remember that? And he was like, oh, yeah. And I said, what was the story behind that a little bit that happened? And he says, well, the funny thing about it, he goes, well, the guy was, he goes, he was mentally ill. There was something that wasn't quite right with him. And he goes, and he thought it would be a good idea. He goes, my boss is the guy that actually tackled him. And I was like, really? I'm like, this is an interesting story. And he kind of shared what happened in the process and everything. And he said, this is where it got hit. And he was showing, but he's like, you can kind of see a mark, but you really can't. And I was just sitting there just on the side. But the whole point that I was trying to say is you can try to contain the curse, You can try to put barriers to protect people and your loved ones and your stuff from the curse, but people will always find a way around it because we live in a broken world. Because we live in a broken world, there will always be somebody that invents a new scam. There will always be someone that can overwrite the newest technology, that figures out how to pick the next lock, that can violate the next security system in your house or your car. There's always somebody who can figure that out. The security industry globally in 2015 was worth $22 billion. That's the IT global security industry was worth $22 billion. Their whole purpose around global security is to keep good people safe and keep the bad people out of the good people's stuff. $22 billion. There are networks of people all around the world that their whole bent, their whole purpose is to deceive and to scam people out of their stuff. And they do it with smiles on their face every day. And some of you maybe have received these phone calls from people, right? Especially the ones that I get that say, your your computer, your Windows computer is sending error messages to me. 
And I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun because I don't own a Windows computer. And I'm like, okay, great. What is it telling you? You know, and I remember I had a conversation maybe two months ago with someone and I kept on the phone for 15 or 20 minutes. And I was like, well, what does it say? I'm like, well, it's giving me an error message. What does it say? It says S-C-A-M. S-C-A-M. And the guy was like, what? And he was like, hey, man, I'm not a scammer. I'm like, you are a scammer. I'm like, I don't even have a Windows computer. And you're telling me, hey, what are you saying about me? I'm like, get a job, man. I'm like, love people. Stop. And like, I just started like yelling at him on the phone. And he was like, you watch your mouth, man. And I was like, you're trying to embezzle money, steal money from me. Anyway, that's a different subject. (laughs) There are a lot of really not very kind people in this world. And if they can steal it from you, they will. Here's the thing. We cannot fix that on our own. It is a spiritual problem, and that's what Solomon's talking about here. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying, our world is broken, guys, and there is no hope for its solution if we are the hope of the world. You think in your wisdom you're going to come up with a better mousetrap? No. You think you're going to come up with something brand new that no one's ever come up with? No. We are flawed people, and we have a problem that can't be fixed on our own. Some of you know who Ellen, De- Ellen DeGeneres is. She's an awesome com- uh, comedian, and she's Dory. Some of you know that. And she has a great talk show. Um, this is what she says about this. And I'm sharing this because this isn't just a Christian perspective. She says, the only thing that scares me more than space aliens is the idea that there aren't any space aliens. She said, we can't be the best that creation has to offer. I pray we're not all there is. If so, we're in big trouble. I think this is so revealing to the heart of people to say, even people that are not looking at it from a perspective of being created in the image of God to say, there's gotta be something better than mankind because we're messed up. We live in a broken world. Now, please don't misinterpret this. Don't walk away going like, is pastor Paul saying there's space aliens or there's not space aliens. People have a way of grabbing things in quotes and just running with it It has nothing to do. I don't know. Uh, That's another conversation for another time. The point of this. Okay. The point of this is that she's saying, if this is all there is, meaning us and we're the solution to it all, we are in trouble because we can't fix it. And that's what I think Solomon is trying to share with us as well. He's saying, what is lacking cannot be counted. The first half of that verse was, what's crooked can't be straightened. And look again, what is lacking cannot be counted. You know what he's saying here? He's saying our wisdom, the greatest amount of wisdom you and I can have, applying, doing the right thing, every week, everything, we were always going to come up short because there's a piece that is missing. And you can't count the piece that's not there. Do we have any jigsaw puzzle people in the room today? Any puzzle people? You love puzzles? Yeah? I love you. I don't understand you. But I love you. My wife is a puzzle person. Let me tell you something. I can imagine the frustration that anybody would assume if they went through a big puzzle for like a week. Like I've seen puzzles that go on my table like for weeks. Can you imagine finishing one of these puzzles and having one piece missing? Anyone ever have that experience and you're still breathing and your family's still breathing? That is a very stressful thing for people. And here's the problem with it. It will drive you crazy. I had friends years ago because you can, you can take puzzles when you create them and you can put a, like a, a cover on them so you can actually frame them and everything so they stay together and you can hang them. I knew a friend years ago that did this and when they had that happen to them and the puzzle piece was missing, they framed the picture and the puzzle without the missing piece. I mean, without the piece there. Because they were like, no way, I'm throwing that away. I put all this time and effort to it. I don't care if it's missing. I'll color it in if I need to. 
I'm like, just fill it in with some spackle or something and color it red or something like that. But they were like, I'm not going to let the whole thing get thrown away. But can I tell you, and this is what's so hard to look at that. Don't ever say this to someone who's doing a jigsaw puzzle because they won't love you. But if, if they spend all their time and energy on it and it's all done and there's no pieces left and there's only one piece missing, don't ever go up to them and go, it's still not finished. <laughs> I know it's still not finished. And here's the really sad part, because I found this out a number of years ago when we had a missing puzzle piece. You can't call the company and ask for it. You know why? I don't know if you know this or not. I don't even know why I know this. Um, When they make these puzzles, they make them on drums, and the cutout is on a drum. And when they run them through these machines, and I don't know if every company does this, but the ones that I actually talk to, believe it or not, when we miss the piece, they said, you can't do that, because when it goes under the drum, it rolls And every puzzle is slightly different. And I was like, whoa, like I never heard of that before. And at least that was that company's story. Maybe they just didn't want to find a piece. I don't know. But but the point I'm trying to say here, the point I'm trying to say is that if it's missing, it's missing. And there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to go with what you've got. And that's the part that we need to be reminded of. A missing puzzle piece and the huge missing puzzle piece in the solution to the meaning of life is God himself. He is the one who created it all. He's the one that knows it all. He's the one that understands it all. Our human understanding can never be at the level that God's understanding is. And he says this and reminds us through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. Look what he says. The Lord says, My thoughts and my ways are not like yours. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, my thoughts and my ways are higher than yours. God is the missing piece. And he brings an element of wisdom and understanding to this world that you and I can never achieve and never understand in our own strength. That's just the truth. And it's hard for us to hear that sometimes. And maybe it's, maybe it's not. I mean, for me, actually, it's not really hard. For me, it's kind of comforting. Because as much as I've tried, as much as I try to get the answer, as much as I try to be better, I'm always tweaking and adjusting and wondering what the next thing is to make things a little bit better, going, is there ever going to be a time where I don't have to make a change or an adjustment? Is there ever a time that I don't have to actually make another um, uh, edit to what I'm working on because I've arrived? And the answer to that is no. We can always improve. We can always get better. We can always learn more. We can always have better understanding and we're never going to arrive. And that's the part that's hard for us to understand sometimes or at least to accept. His thoughts and ways are not like ours. This is how how different God is that I think is incredible when I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks. I literally do think about this stuff. So maybe that's why um, I don't have any friends uh, because I think about this stuff and I'm like, okay, this is important. Um, I'm just kidding. But let let me just think about this for a second. Think about this with me. Whatever man creates, if left alone, deteriorates. Whatever God creates, if left alone, flourishes. Everything we create in this world, if we do not maintain and continue to make better, eventually goes away. But everything that God creates, if left alone, gets better. And it will overtake everything man has created. Isn't that incredible? Think about that. I mean, that puts us in a different plane. God's like in a different world saying, you only understand this little bit and I understand all of this. 
I hope you're following me on that. It's so powerful when I think about how that works, to go, God, if I stop investing in doing the things that I have here, if I stop cutting my grass, if I stop paving my driveway, if I stop building my house, if I stop maintaining these different things, all I need to do is let time have its way, and your creation will always overtake mine. It's incredible. And that's important for us to remember that he's the missing link and he's the missing piece. Look what he says in verse 16. I said to myself, Solomon says, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. He's saying, I had the opportunity to do it. I gave all of my time for it. I experienced much wisdom and knowledge, and then I applied myself to understand how it works. And I also looked at foolish things too, by the way. And this is the conclusion. I'm just chasing the wind. I'm chasing the wind. Now, some of you may be collectors. I collect different kinds of things. I don't collect big things. Like one of the things I collect in my house because it's small and it's easy to go somewhere. But you know those machines, you know, that destroy American currency? Crush pennies. I'm just kidding. You know the crush pennies, the penny crushing machines that stamp like wherever you go. You put a 50 cents in plus the penny and then when you crank that thing, it like smushes your penny and it puts the stamp on wherever you I collect those. Um, just because everywhere I go, I don't need all of this big stuff, but it's nice for me to have this big handful of things. I could just look at them and like, I remember being here, 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 here. And it all fits in my drawer. So I don't have to get a U-Haul truck for it. I just have this little thing here. So I like to collect that, okay? I know people that collect toys. I know people that collect instruments, people that collect things they shouldn't collect. I know all kinds of things. I know people that collect movies, people that collect technology, people that collect quilts and blankets, and I've known all kinds of people that collect stuff. Never, ever have I met someone that collects wind. If you walk into someone's house and they have 30 jars with labels on them to say, this was the wind from Jerusalem. This is the wind from Paris. When I went to Australia, wind. I went to the Grand Canyon, and this is the wind from the Grand Canyon. You would leave that house very quickly. (laughs) There's nothing in there. It's just air. And it doesn't look any different than any other place. Why? Nobody collects the wind. Why? Because it's silly. Am I wrong? Am I right? We don't collect the wind. And what is Solomon saying here? It's so powerful. What is he saying here? He's saying, after all of my wisdom, after everything I can do in my own strength, after everything I've learned and applied and all the madness and folly I've thought through, all of it is like collecting the wind. It doesn't have any meaning to it. And I think if I could summarize what I think he's trying to say and what I believe how it applies to my life is that finite mortal people can never comprehend an infinite eternal God. I am finite. I have a birth. And if the Lord tarries, his return tarries, I'll have a death. I am mortal. I'm only destined to be on this planet for a little bit. Doesn't mean that my soul doesn't live on forever. I'm saying in my physical shell, it began to grow when I was little. 
I kind of plateaued at some point, and now I'm on the decline. And that's what happens to our bodies, you know, and that's just what happens, you know. That's why some of you I can see clearly and others look a little blurry to me. And that's just the way it works. That's our life. Because finite mortal people can never understand an infinite, eternal God. So I think that's what he's saying. And he's reminding us of this through a very, very significant truth in verse 18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And I want to illustrate this, if I can, with just a simple understanding when I was doing a little research on this. It was back in 1925. There was a guy. His name was Edwin Hubble. And he made an observation. Some of you know the name Hubble because there's a telescope named after him. He made an observation that the universe is always expanding. And science affirms this today, that the universe is always expanding. Now, here's what's so incredible about it. In the quest that we have had from thousands and thousands of years ago, and you can even look in Psalm 8 and see where David looked up at the heavens and said, when I consider the heavens and the work and the stars you put in place, what is man that you are mindful of us? Why do you care about us little people when you look at everything around us where the understanding of is there life beyond this planet or what does all of this look like? How far can we see into, the, into the, the galaxy? How far can we see into our solar system or in the universe around us? Man has always wanted to go further and see more of what we can possibly see. And what they have found through technology and telescopes and probes is that the universe continues to expand. And all of the different areas of the universe, the galaxies are flying away from every other galaxy. And it continues to do that and will continue to do that. So my point in saying that is whenever we think we get to the end, we're not. It just keeps going and going and going and going because God is greater than us. God is bigger than us. He's always expanding and he's doing more and more. And we, we want to think we'll finally arrive and that will be the answer. And what we see, and God's creation affirms that, is that we'll never see everything because he's always expanding and things are always growing and things are always continuing to move away so that there's more than we can ever understand. It's really powerful. And I hope as we think about this this morning that we understand today that wisdom in itself is not bad. Remember, wisdom is doing things that are right. Wisdom that is, is doing things that are honoring to God. And all of those things are not, are not bad. But let's be reminded of this today. That if that becomes the thing that we believe gives us meaning and purpose, we're destined to be disappointed. There's an example in the Gospels where Jesus talks to his disciples and he says this to them. He said, there will come a day that people will come and stand before me and they'll say things like this. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal the sick in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? And you know what Jesus says to them in response? This is incredible. Away from me. I never knew you. All of the good things that we can do in our lives, all the wisdom that we can apply in our lives, guys, it's not bad to do them, but it can never be the substitute for knowing God. Because real fulfillment comes in knowing him, following him, being loved by him, and loving him in return. If our worship team can come as we get ready to close this morning, I want to use this opportunity to challenge you again, like I did last week. All of us are thirsty. We're physically thirsty, but we're also spiritually thirsty. 
And the whole point of this series is to remind each one of us that the only thing that satisfies us is knowing God. The only thing that will ever satisfy you is knowing God. Jesus talked about this again in John 6, 35, when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Again, why? Because he's saying, bread is life, and I am the bread. And if you want to never be hungry again, you need to know me. And if you want to never be thirsty again, you need to know me. That doesn't mean that our problems go away. It doesn't mean we don't experience adversity and sorrow and hurt and pain. What it means is that we make a conscious choice to look at the foundation of our life and say, I am not the center of the universe. I am not. God is the center of the universe. And I'm going to build my life on God. I'm going to build my life on his foundation. Because if you let your wealth or your things or your materialism or your wisdom and knowledge, your intellect, if any of these things become the things that you're building on, if you will, it's kind of like spending all of your time building this house. And then one day you open up the front door and you realize that Jesus lives across the street. As silly as that sounds, you go, what? And Jesus waves and he says, wrong foundation, buddy. Well, how do I come over there, Jesus? And he says, the only solution to that is to tear the house down and rebuild on my foundation. And by the way, I have a space here for you. So come build on my lot so that I can show you what real life looks like. Let's make sure that we're building for eternity. Let's make sure that our hearts, because I can tell you when the winds and the waves come in this world, when your job goes away, when your family decides to, you know, get old and move out of your house and have kids and the phone doesn't ring as much, when your health starts to fail you, when the doctor gives you that difficult news, when your identity gets shaken by the things that are only temporal, the only thing that stands is who you know. And who you know needs to be Jesus because he never changes. And that's where we can experience true peace. So that Paul can say, and we can adapt to this, and we can agree with this, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, present your requests before God. And what does it say? This is Philippians 4. The peace of God will fill your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Why? Because our identity, our foundation is not built upon us. It's only built on Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're building on the wrong foundation, I want to challenge you today. Let Jesus draw you across the street to build on the right foundation so that you can experience real life. Would you stand as we get ready to close this morning?